Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Robert L. Oaken, a psychiatrist and a former commissioner of mental health in Vermont and Massachusetts, is a world-renowned expert on human rights for the mentally disabled. He spent two years on the street meeting and photographing homeless people with mental illness, and he's written a book in which he tries to find answers to how they ended up on the streets. Silent Voices, People with Mental Disorders on the Street is published by Golden Pine Press and brings Dr. Oaken to our show now. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. This is the second edition of this book. When was the first one published? In 2014. So that's uh, a while ago, nine years ago. What got you interested in the subject initially? I really wanted to get a visceral understanding of how mentally ill homeless people coped day after day and night after night, bearing the stresses, grime, violence, and extreme deprivations of life on the street. But as I met with these people who were homeless and mentally ill and heard their stories, I really wanted to share with the public a view of these people as human beings beyond their rags, their carts, and their strange behaviors. By giving them a voice in the public domain, I guess I hoped that I could convey their essential humanity as a kind of counterweight to the fear, hostility, blame, and indifference with which they're generally seen and treated. They're often almost invisible, aren't they? We, yeah, we, yes, we avert yeah. our eyes. Right. They're, yeah, they're invisible because we refuse to see them. And they're silent because we refuse to hear them. But as long as we don't see them as people, we'll never be able to identify with them and see what we have in common rather than just observing our differences. And we'll continue to dehumanize them. And if we carry this view into the political arena, we'll continue to convey to our political leaders that we don't really care about these people and won't hold them accountable for abandoning them. And the problem will never be solved. I've, I've really come to believe that humanizing them is the foundation for political action. And only this will let our political leaders know that we insist that they stop nibbling around the edges of this problem and really take action to solve it. Well, for this new edition, you've expanded on the sections of the book about the causes and solutions to homelessness of people with mental disorders. Did enough things change over the nine years since you uh, published the first book for you to want to revisit the situation? That's a good question. Well, when I wrote the first edition, you know, I had spent two very long and difficult years on the street. Mm. And by the time I was finished interviewing 45, 50 people, I was kind of exhausted, to tell you the truth. And I wanted to write a book that really focused exclusively on their stories and their photographs. And I 
didn't really have the energy at that point or the motivation to focus on causes and solutions. But in the last 10 years, just seeing how governments over and over seem to be botching this problem, hmm. uh, I decided that I wanted to really focus on the causes and the solutions. And the two are related because the solutions are really linked to the causes. Have you added photographs? There's a lot of pictures in this book. Have I, say it again? Have you added photographs or are these all no, just the no, original ones? No, no, I didn't add any photographs. I just added material on what I have come to believe are the real causes of this really toxic problem. So following up on what you said, are we seeing some different kinds of homelessness today than we did in 2014? I don't think there's a lot of difference, uh, largely because the uh, some of the causes of homelessness uh, that were extant in 2014 are still going on today. Well, is discrimination a factor? Does it tend to be more common among certain racial groups or oh, ethnic groups? Absolutely. Uh, you know, you can't talk about homelessness without uh, really pointing to the fact that especially black people, but also others in minority groups uh, show up in the homeless population overrepresented there. For example, you know, the black population in this country is probably 12 percent, but their proportion in the homeless population is 39 percent. Hmm. So not, so that's about four times the amount that they should be showing up. So systemic racism and discrimination really has an impact on homelessness, largely, I think, through the economic kinds of discrimination against black people. What's the ratio of men to women? There are more men than women. Yeah, well, walking down the street, you might think that. Yeah, well, it's that that is the case. Uh, you know, a lot of the women that I met, maybe 40 percent, uh, acknowledged that they had been sexually abused as children. Uh, and many of them get sexually abused on the streets as well. Really? Yeah. Well, how does that happen? People t say, come, stay, come with me, and then they take them to a hotel or something? Yeah, well, living on the streets is a dangerous, a dangerous life. And violence is a prominent part of homelessness. I mean, it's not just the women who have been subjects of physical violence, but men also hmm. have uh, experience with violence on the streets. Being on the streets, sleeping on the streets, it is not safe. 
And people are always worried about their safety and for good reason. And now with the new migrant crisis, we have a whole bunch of people who wouldn't normally be sleeping on the streets, sleeping on the streets. Well, that is true. In fact, in New York City, the shelter system is just overwhelmed. Before the migrant crisis, 60, I would say there were 63,000 people living in shelters. Now, not so long after that, there are over 100,000. Hmm. Uh, last year, didn't New York's mayor, Eric Adams, direct the police to involuntarily remove people from the city streets? Where did he suggest that they be housed? You know, the truth is, I think he had absolutely no idea. Hmm. Uh, it was a, a, it was a mirage of a solution to homelessness, not a real solution. The sixty-three thousand people before the migrant crisis, who were living in shelters, have been living in shelters often for years because there's no permanent housing hmm. for them. So they basically languish in these very deprived environments. Isn't New York City legally required to give shelter to anyone who asks for it? Yes, it is. Uh, how how successful has that been? Well, until the migrant crisis, uh, it, it really was successful. But... Uh, you know, I have to say it was successful in dealing with the unsheltered homeless population because it really gave them shelter. And there were many, many less people on the street sleeping on the street after this, uh, after these shelters were developed. But the shelters were developed, it has to be said, as a result of a class action lawsuit based on a constitutional provision in New York State that gave all people the right to shelter. But keeping them in shelters because the uh, city government has no place to put them uh, is not exactly a solution to homelessness. I mean, you can't call living in a shelter a home. Hmm. And not only... I mean, it's, you might think that the fact that there's no place for them uh, permanently is just kind of a, 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 a fact of nature, so to speak. It just happened that way. But it didn't just happen that way. I mean, uh, not too long ago, New York City gave incentives to builders and landlords to convert low-income housing to, uh, you know, to condominiums that low-income people couldn't possibly afford. And the result is that New York City lost 100,000 low-income apartments. Wow. So where did those people go? They went into the street. Now, that... That didn't just happen. It happened because the city gave incentives to make it happen so that in a sense, you know, homelessness, unhoused homelessness 
was really a result of government action in New York City. Not all of it, but a lot of it. Well, New York's weather changes a lot over the course of a year. I would want to be in a shelter for sure during the cold winter months. What about some of the other places where we see a lot of homelessness? L.A. has a weather, I guess, that's a lot more conducive to sleeping outside. San Francisco or any other major cities? Portland, Seattle. They're cold in the winter. Nevertheless, they have a tremendous homeless population. You know, uh, the, there were there were uh, parts of Texas that also had a huge homeless population, and um, you know, at least one of those cities, the mayor was focused on dealing with the unhoused population and he uh, he was able to decrease homelessness at least chronic homelessness by 63% well according to 2021 federal data on any given night 580,000 people will have no place to eat sleep or get out of the cold or the rain uh, has that figure increased in recent, in the last couple of years? Well, it's it's gone up and it's gone down, but it, it's hovered around that level. So would you say that homelessness is a national crisis? Oh, there's no question about it. And now, uh, now more than earlier in our history? Well, remember that this whole thing started with state's decision to dump people out of mental hospitals. Uh, and for political reasons? I wouldn't say it was for political reasons. It was for economic reasons. States, state governments were looking to empty their hospitals as a way of saving money. And that's why it's red like wildfire through the country because every state had the same idea. We can really save money if we just dump these people out of the hospital. But of course, the same impulse that caused them to dump people out of the hospital also got reflected in the fact that they gave these people virtually nothing mm. when they, you know, when they left the hospitals, no housing, no support, no services. And so where did these people end up? Many of them ended up on the street. And that was the first, the first large group of people who became homeless. Uh, but not, you know, it wasn't the only way that governments created homelessness. And they did, by the way. If you look at the causes of homelessness, government is really the culprit in many, many ways. So deinstitutionalization in its mindless way was obviously one, one way. But to this day, 70 years after deinstitutionalization, governments have still failed hmm. to create the kind of mental health 
and substance abuse services that could help treat these people. The result is that 40% of the homeless population has serious and untreated psychiatric disorders. And when the drug epidemic emerged in the 70s, governments at all levels failed to both stem the flow of drugs into the country and establish substance abuse services that could help people who became addicted. So more people as a result of these failures slipped into the streets. But more fundamentally, and this is really important, and I don't think that most people connect the dots here, but more fundamentally, the taxation policies created by the federal government have contributed in a major way to the huge disparities of wealth in this society. And the result of this is that 10% of the population was allowed to amass a huge amount of wealth, more than 50% of the bottom half of the population combined. And this set the stage for a huge increase in the homeless population for the people at the very bottom of the income ladder were left and are left with almost nothing. I mean, government basically overstuffed and gorged the richest segment of the population, surprise, which inevitably Excuse me? I said surprise, surprise. Yeah, surprise, <laughs> surprise. And it inevitably meant that it had to starve the poorest segment. So the homeless population, I would say, are the true casualties of this huge disparity of wealth. But instead of helping to soften their poverty, the result of these taxation policies, the government aggravated it further by keeping welfare payments on which they depend so, so low as to keep them impoverished forever. And the federal government could have offset the impact of these policies by creating a robust safety net so that the casualties wouldn't fall off into the street with one little financial reverse. But it didn't do this. Instead, Ronald Reagan, who wasn't content as governor to have botched deinstitutionalization in California, slashed the already limited federal support for low-income housing when he became president, and then coming up with his ridiculous trickle-down economic policies, pushing still more people into the street, and then aggravating the federal contribution to homelessness even further was the fact that city and state governments often created incentives that encouraged real estate moguls to convert low-cost housing into condominiums that poor people couldn't possibly afford, you know, as I mentioned about New York City. And in addition, city governments gave tax breaks and other incentives to big tech companies, wooing them to settle within their borders and then failing to adequately tax them for gobbling up the housing supply with their high paid employees in San Francisco and many other cities. The influx of thousands of these employees led to increased and completely unfair competition for the existing housing stock which led to a dramatic increase in housing prices and rents, which in turn displaced low salary renters out of the market, 
In fact, people who had worked in cities for years could no longer afford to live in them, and many ended up on the streets. But there were still other ways that city governments contributed to the inadequate supply of low-cost housing, basically by making it extremely difficult for housing developers to construct low-cost housing. It's almost impossible for many developers to cut through the city's red tape and then traverse its restrictive land use ordinances. And even if they manage to get through all the obstacles, housing developers are forced to confront the politics of the NIMBY organizations, which city governments are often very reluctant to cross. Thus, although they're now wringing their hands about the lack of low-income housing units, let's face it, city governments through each of these policies, in fact, contributed to the situation. You could compare it, and it has been compared to a game, a game of musical chairs. If there aren't enough chairs, someone will always be standing when the music stops. And that person is usually mentally ill, fragile, and totally unable to cope. He either becomes homeless or remains homeless. My guess the government's contributed to homelessness in another way. They inexorably cut psychiatric beds in their general hospitals, making it extremely difficult to treat poor people who need acute care. Many of these people couldn't get treatment for their psychiatric disorders and ended up on the street as part of the 40% of the homeless. Well, what percentage of the homeless suffer from mental illness and uh, what percentage have serious drug problems and, and do some have both? Well, it's generally viewed that 40%, 45% of the homeless population are mentally ill in many of these, possibly the, the majority of these also have concurrent drug abuse problems. So these are people who often have more than one problem. But from what you've been saying, the source of the problem to some degree is that politicians haven't been able to come up with solutions or don't want to come up with solutions. No, that's not what I said. What I said was that politicians have created the problem. And it doesn't and matter now, whether they're Democrats or Republicans? I don't think it really matters. Uh, clearly, in you know, one has to divide that question uh, in a couple of different ways. But at the federal level, I would say that Republican administrations are much tougher on this population than Democratic uh, administrations. For example, you know, I mentioned Ronald Reagan's contribution to the homeless problem. But he, he's just the poster child for Republican administrations uh, that certainly haven't helped the, solve the problem and have helped to create it. Democratic administrations have been kinder to this population and have tried to increase the, for example, the number of housing vouchers. And when Obama was president, uh, he undertook a couple of different policies that I think are really important to reflect on because they give some 
hope that this problem can actually be solved when government stops creating it and really acts to solve it. For example, uh, as a result of Obama's policies and other policies after he uh, left office, uh, largely due to political pressure, he was able to create services for homeless vets. And the result of that was that in 10 years, the number of homeless vets decreased by 41%. I mean, if that doesn't show that this problem is solvable when government stops creating it and acts to solve it, then nothing does. I mean, it's a very important figure because it, it contradicts the pessimism and the resignation that many people have developed about this problem. But now we also have the migrant crisis and many, a couple of Republican states are shipping migrants up to liberal northern cities uh, and those people wind up sleeping on the street. Yeah, it's just another example of how governments create homelessness. Of course, they're going to sleep on the streets because where else are they going to go? And uh, well, New York has tried to find spaces for them and uh, is even creating tent cities. But it's people don't always want those tent cities in their neighborhoods, for example. And um, others don't want the homeless people living in their buildings. You know, this country has a history of wanting mentally ill people to just go away. Uh -huh. They don't go away, at least be out of sight. It, that was one of, the, uh, one of the impetuses for the creation of mental hospitals. Not the only impetus, but one of the impetuses. And for a hundred years, mentally ill people were largely hidden away in mental hospitals. And do you know where a lot of them are now? I can only guess, but where, where are they? They're hidden away in jails and prisons. Ah. The number of mentally ill people in jails and prisons, for example, the Los Angeles County Jail, the number of people, mentally ill people in the Los Angeles County Jail is greater than their population in any state hospital or any hospital in the country. I mean, prisons and jails have almost become the, uh, the inheritors of the mentally ill. And do we have enough space in our, our uh, prisons and hospitals? Well, we certainly don't have enough space in hospitals because the state hospital system has virtually closed down. They used to have 600 and maybe 630,000 patients. They now have about 30,000 patients. And when you look at general hospitals that at least for a time in our history were, uh, were taking psychiatric patients, 
they began to reduce the number of days that psychiatric patients could be treated in their hospital beds. Originally, I would say the length of stay was about 28 days, which certainly gave people the opportunity to receive a fairly complete dose of treatment. You know what it is now, the length of stay? The average length of stay in general hospital is now seven days. Seven days is not enough time for medications to work. And to just to, you know, so that people get thrown out prematurely. And I say thrown out because, you know, especially people who don't have homes, who are homeless and who are admitted to hospitals because of their the secondary consequences of their both their homelessness and their mental illness. Where do they go when they leave the general hospital? I, I shouldn't say leave. I should say discharged from the general hospitals. Well, many of them go back to the to the streets, and the result, you know, without without an address uh, and with just a slip of paper and a name on it that tells them what clinic to visit uh, for their outpatient treatment. You know, which of course is ridiculous. I mean, that's not the way you can treat this particular population. And what's the result of this? The result is that the recidivism rate to general hospital psychiatric units is tremendous. It's about 20 to 30 percent. You know, well, that is both. That's both bad treatment, number one. And number two, it's very wasteful economically. And thirdly, it means that this population is taking up beds uh, that other kinds of patients need as well. So it's just wrong, you know, from every possible respect. Dr. Robert L. Oaken is our guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large, talking about his book, Silent Voices, People with Mental Disorders on the Street, published by Golden Pine Press. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. you're enjoying my conversation with Dr. Robert Oaken. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Silent Voices, People with Mental Disorders on the Street. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we would be happy to send you a copy. That's given the number 2WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 or more donation in the name of London Located Lodge, and we thank you very much and return to our conversation with Dr. Organ, uh, Orkin. Uh, now... Um, don't most people tend to avert their eyes when they see someone 
sleeping on the street, and, and isn't it a problem that mentally ill people seem strange so it can be difficult to empathize with them? Yeah, that's very, very true. And, you know, it, I have to say that that's really the main reason that I wrote the book. You know, I was trying to help the public see these people beyond as, their rags. As people. beyond cards. Yeah, as people, exactly. Uh, and I have to say, the book that I wrote is not for everyone. You know, it has about 40 narrative, first-person narratives uh, that are basically quotes from the people who spoke to me and also photographs because I was just struck by the way that the, the pain of their lives was etched on their faces. So... This this book is not for everyone, but those of your listeners who really want to know what it's like to be homeless, you know, to to really get a sense of it, both physically and emotionally, and also how people become homeless, I think they'll be interested in this book. Well, you go ahead. Yeah. And also those of your listeners who are interested in how homelessness has become such a national crisis and why the problem hasn't been solved and what we can do to solve it might want to read it. You said that you spent two years on the streets approaching the people you interviewed for this book more or less randomly. Did you have any preconceived notions about them other than you say you expected to be dismissed? Yeah, well... You know, I have to say that I was so uncomfortable approaching people initially. Uh, Even though you know, you're I, a shrink and, uh, you know, you often yes. talk to yeah, people about yeah, the most personal things in their lives. Yeah, I'm a shrink. But, you know, on the street, I wasn't a shrink. I was just a dude with a knapsack and a camera. Hmm. And I had none of the authority that I that my white coat gave me in the hospital. Uh, so, as you said, I expected that they'd blow me off. Uh, but they refuse, you know, and I expected that they would refuse to talk to me. But I found the opposite. They, they were really genuinely pleased that I was interested in their lives. They were probably most, feeling lonely. Yeah, ex that is exactly right. So many of them were isolated and they had been neglected as children and they feel invisible as people on the street. So seeing that I was really interested in their lives meant a lot to them. And I would say 70 percent of the people I approached were very willing to talk to me. What was Jeff's story? Oh, well, Jeff was a man who I have to say I became quite attached to and, you know, had breakfast with him monthly and uh, actually played baseball with him. He was a he was an incredible pitcher. And I remember the way he pitched to me, my hands were stinging at the end. Uh, so this, is, this was a guy that you could really relate to. Well, when he was a kid, uh, his mother was uh, schizophrenic in and out of mental hospitals and on many occasions threatened 
to knife his father mm. with a butcher knife. And he remembers laying awake at night, terrified that his mother would come in and stab him. Well, somehow he managed to get through school. I don't know. I don't know quite how. And he followed in his father's footsteps and became a garbage collector. And this job was a source of enormous pride to him. You know, he said to me once, you couldn't find a gum wrapper on the street when I finished collecting the garbage. But unfortunately, he lost his job as a result of the fact that on some random drug test, there was a little pot in his urine. Mm. This is really a good example of how many people become homeless because losing his job led to led to real depression in which he couldn't get out of bed and he began to take drugs to try to treat his own depression and the result was he lost his apartment he lost his finances and he lost his fiancee so with that he slipped into the street. You know, so let, let me just... Well, how did they was, find the money to pay for their their drugs? Because uh, they... Uh, is it impossible for many of them to find a job? Uh, are they, is it all a matter of just begging? Well, I... You know, he found... He found money in two ways. First, he spent his days with his eyes on the sidewalk trying to find change that people had dropped. And it's amazing. He was able to pick up some money that way, but he supplemented it by shoplifting. Hmm. So he, he basically, for the next 10 years, slept on a heating grate and, uh, you know, and just managed to eke an existence. But... What happened was he began to lose all his teeth and because the grime and the stress of uh, and the poor dental care of the streets and the drugs he was using, which had a drying effect on his mouth, <clears throat> which was really terrible for his teeth. Anyway, he began to lose his teeth and on you know, eventually one of his teeth became so abscessed that he was not able to treat it with antibiotics and it traveled, the infection traveled to his heart. Huh. He had to be hospitalized for about, I can't remember exactly, I think about a hundred days for a cost of $200,000 at a minimum. Which uh, he didn't so, pay. Excuse me. Which he didn't pay. He didn't have any money. Like no, no. It was the it was the city who paid, and the state and the federal government who paid. I mean, basically, it was the taxpayer who paid for the result of his homelessness. We should talk about that in a minute because yeah. it's really important. But just to finish his story, while he was in the hospital, a social worker by the name of Lisa visited him and convinced him to. Uh, into treatment with her. She saw him every single day for about a year, urging him to give up his uh, drug abuse. 
and ultimately being able to get him housing. And between her and something else, well, it was really, it was really her efforts. My efforts were, you know, trivial compared to hers. But he, when I asked him, look, what do you have to live for? He said, well, basically nothing. And I said, well, is there anything you care about? And he said, yeah, I really love cats. So I took him to an animal shelter and we got uh, we got an adorable kitten. He took the kitten home. And shortly after that, he stopped taking drugs. And I asked him, well, what happened? And he said, well, first of all, you know, I felt I owed it to Lisa, who has poured her heart into my in, into me. And I didn't want to disappoint her. And secondly, so he felt now, needed. Yeah, I now have. Well, yeah, I now had I now felt I had something to live for the kitten because he said I couldn't take care of the kitten and take drugs at the same time. I had to choose. And so I gave up. I gave up my drugs. And shortly after that, Lisa helped him get a part time job. And, uh, you know, his life just turned around. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Robert L. Oaken, who's written a book called Silent Voices, People with Mental Disorders on the Street, published by Golden Pine Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Leonard Lopate. So let's get go back. You say there are certain causes that can often be traced back to many of these people's childhoods, like violence, sexual abuse, abandonment by parents. Some have been through foster care. But somebody like Jeff seemed to have been leading a normal life until things changed. Yeah. So it's a wide range of reasons that those people are out on the street. Do they have any one thing in common other than they wind up homeless? Well, it's not universal, but but almost everybody I met had suffered abuse and neglect in their childhoods. Hmm. You know, I, 40% of the women I met had been sexually abused. So abuse and neglect was rampant in their childhoods and it's it set them up for homelessness in the future it's not true that everybody who was abused and neglected as children ends up on the street so there there is something something specially vulnerable about these kids when they become adults uh and the fact is that, you know, many of them were genetically predisposed to mental illness. So they didn't have a fighting chance even before they were born. And their mental illness usually developed in adolescence uh, or in their early 20s. So it's a combination of reasons, but, you know, they're, they're circumscribed. And for this new edition of your book, you've expanded on 
the sections about the causes and solutions to homelessness, uh, the lack of affordable housing, deficits in community mental health services, criminalization of the mentally ill, the values of American society, and, uh, and other causes of homelessness among people with mental disorders. Were yes. you even aware of those things before you started uh, working on this new edition? Well, I was certainly aware of them in in isolation, but but adding this material really forced me to see their combination and see how each of those. Um, each of those factors compounded. And it was the compounding of the factors that I mentioned before that really has led to this homelessness crisis rather than any one in particular. You also um, discuss the impact of COVID. Was this, was this group particularly hard hit? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't really hard hit because the city, at least in San Francisco, you know, found that in the shelters, there were a couple of people who developed COVID and they knew that if they didn't do something, if they kept people in shelters, that it would just, you know, the infection would uh, just spread through the whole population and spreading through the population. They were of, of, of homeless people in shelters. They were afraid it would spread to the rest of the population. So in, in, in kind of a miraculous fashion, they somehow found empty beds in hotels and motels, uh, helped by some of Newsom's policies and what it showed me was that when the politics of the situation, in this case, their fear that COVID would spread to the whole population from the homeless, when the politics of the situation lined up in the way they did, that, you know, lo and behold, government was able to find some kind of housing uh, for them that was relatively safe. So what do you suggest government should do to get the homeless off of our streets? And, well, and does it matter what political party is in charge? I mean, you, you've been, we've been talking about uh, places where mostly like California, New York, where uh, one party seems to dominate, but then there are other places like Texas and Florida, where another party would uh, yeah, dominate. I don't think, yeah, uh, I don't think it matters what party. Fundamentally, it doesn't matter. I mean, one party might be more helpful than another party, but, you know, it, that's at the margins. So I don't think it really matters what party mm -hmm. uh, is in power. So you ask, what can we do? Yeah. Well, first, we have to recognize that the problem is eminently solvable, as I said before, and we've got to challenge our own hopelessness. 
that leads to resignation and political apathy and that leads to a lot of excuses among politicians. And, you know, as I, I as I said before, the homelessness of vets has been reduced by 41 percent in the last decade. So it can be done. Houston is another example. A decade ago, Houston was the Houston, you know, which I have to say is the fourth largest city in the country, had one of the worst homelessness problems in the country. Since then, it's moved more than 25,000 homeless people directly into apartments and housing. The overwhelming majority of them have remained in housing after two years. So the number of homeless people in Houston has been cut by 63%. How did they do this? basically by prioritizing the chronically homeless population in deeds, not just in words, combining funds from various levels of government, along with getting corporate funds, and then reorganizing and streamlining all of its homeless-related agencies, and very importantly, keeping the focus on the most difficult population who had been on the streets for more than a year and who were largely mentally ill or who had drug problems. No, we only have talking and began acting. We only have about a minute and a half left, but you have, uh, as a founding member of the Board of Advisors of Mental Disability Rights International, you have been to Armenia, Azerbaijan, Hungary, Peru, Romania, Turkey, Paraguay, Ukraine, Mexico. Uh, are any countries handling this better? Or is this a, a world, this is an international crisis in a, in a way? Well, I would say it is an international crisis. The uh, countries you mentioned, by and large, still keep their mentally ill in mental hospitals and out of sight. And those mental hospitals were as, and are as abusive as ours were previously. But, you know, so that, that's about those countries. But if you look at Western European countries, the rate of homelessness is much less than in the United States. Why? Well, there are several reasons, but one reason is that their taxation policies are much more progressive than ours. And the result is that they have much more money to help people at the bottom of the income ladder. So I would say that's the main reason. Well, I thank you so much for being on our show to talk about this serious problem that is not going to go away. Uh, Dr. Robert L. Oaken's book is Silent Voices. People with Mental Disorders on the Street, published by Golden Pine Press. The second edition is just being released. And it's been, uh, uh, well, it's been a disturbing but uh, important conversation. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thanks very much for having me and taking this problem seriously, because it's only going to be through political action that we're going to be able to get governments to do what they can do and solve this problem. And that does bring us to the end of our show. My great thanks to Keziah Glow, our executive producer, and to Reggie Johnson, our audio engineer, for all the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program 
and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has now far surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the station coming to you and the show coming to you. We are going through a, a rough financial crisis right now, so we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. No amount is too small or obviously too large. That's 212-209-2950 or give in the number 2WBAI.org because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who, who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of London Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Silent Voices, People with Mental Disorders on the Street by Robert Oaken. So why not make that call right now, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for $5, $10, $15, $20, $25, whatever amount you're comfortable with a month. And as long as you want to do that, it allows us um, to... uh, plan for the future, and we will say thank you with a WBAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a member. Remember, we don't take foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio, so if you tune in regularly to this show, why not let us know you appreciate what we do by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station the only one that the New York Radio Dial is 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. We're preempted on Monday. Unfortunately, we have to do fundraising, but I hope you can join us again on Tuesday with when Alta Gracia Outerbridge will discuss New York's current rental crisis. We'll see you then, and I hope you have a great weekend. Music